0: You've discovered TalkZone.com. TalkZone.com, the best in Internet talk radio. TalkZone.com You are entering an intriguing journey with spiritual lifestyle experts Keith and Charmé Amber, where you'll end up more at home with yourself, your behavior, and your understanding of life.
1: This is Keith and Charmy Amber, mastering ourselves. How are you doing today? Years ago, um, before I got married to my former wife, there was a little buzz about her going on that um, she uh, she was pulled in as a psychic for a uh, really famous murder that was in Reno, okay. Reno, Nevada, and. Um, She had all the places the the person went, and she had everything right except for the sex. And uh, when they found the person and all that kind of stuff and found the body, you know, all the stuff that happened in the murder, um, she missed the sex, and and she was perplexed. And then they came back later on and says, well, the person was gay. (laughs) And we have a guest today. His name is uh, Stephen Swartz, and he's famous for remote viewing, and he's like a psychic scientist, a scientist and a psychic and a psychic scientist. Remote viewing is a lot what he does. I call what I do remote being. I simply go with my energy field and go be where the person or situation, we do this every day on different situations to see what's going on and what we should do, and we simply go be there and read the situation, and then, okay, what should we do with that read, uh, you know, with what it tells us? Go forward or stop or they're not interested or whatever. We do it without imposing. And um, so uh, my former wife also, a um, very interesting thing happened, you know, she was like uh, never, you know, she's just really accurate psychically so a guy came he was all sort of out of breath sweating and weird and just came to her trailer you know she was sort of known in the area and so he came there and he said do a psychic read on me and he he seemed weird to her and uh she goes well i, I just don't get a thing well what have i I've been doing this last hour what about today I, I don't get a thing i don't get it i don't get a thing so he sort of slammed the door and left through, through a, like a couple twenties out there or something like that. And um later on that day we found out that there was a murder in, uh, in the area she was in, a little, uh, suburb of Reno. And the guy who did it was the guy who came in real fast for a psychic read. You know, we, we figured that he was doing that to see if he could be traced and, um we figured if she guessed it, she would have been number two. Next on the two, list. Number two. That's right. Uh, one well, other thing, you know, along that line is I had about a half a day and there was this first guy on the milk carton. You remember the milk cartons where they had the person missing? And we had one in our town. And, uh, so I was going, well, I'm, I'm gonna see if I can sense what, this, what happened to this guy and where he went. You know, a young boy. So I had about 4 hours and I drove out cl- along a river and I sort of go well seems like the guy was like uh I'm not going to get into it too far you know problems happened there where he was killed but I couldn't sense him in the river or anywhere in the in the big brush that was there so I just followed the instinct almost like antennas went up to a saddle in the road uh way off to a side uh dirt road, walked up, and I go, boy, it seems like he's here, but I don't see him, and I was running out of time, so I left. About six months later, they found uh, a dog brought in some of the human bones, and they scoured the area and found the the boy's body decomposed about um, uh, 50 to 100 yards from where I was, I estimate. And all I'm saying is this is like, in my particular case, it was like sort of an antenna of an intent. And um, I enjoyed reading this book, Opening to the Infinite, by Stephen Swartz. We're going to have him on just in a second. He explains a lot of what goes on with this and many other things. He he does experimentations of uh, like prayer, uh, healing, um, frequencies under the water, telepathy... And so, Charmaine, you want to bring him in?
2: Yes, he is a, um, if you will, he is married psychic and scientist. So he is good at proving psychic, which is very cool. So would you welcome to the show uh, Stephen A. Schwartz, uh, author of Opening to the Infinite. How you doing, Stephen?
3: I'm doing very well. How are you all this evening?
2: Good. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Keith had fun with your book.
1: Oh, well, good. Very nice. Uh, I appreciated, you know, you you didn't embellish it. You weren't all emotional. You just wrote a clear description of uh, how these things go on, factual. You had proof. So I I really appreciated that aspect of it, too.
3: Well, uh, you know, this is a book I promised my late wife I would write, and I put it off because I knew it was going to be a lot of work but I realized I had to do it, had to keep the promise. And, and what I tried to do was to put down everything science knows about opening to non-local consciousness, that part of us that is outside time-space, and which is the experience that you ha- one has. Uh, if you are a religious ecstatic and you're in search of God, that's the experience you have. If you're a scientist in search of some breakthrough idea about a principle, that's the experience you have. If if you're a psychic um, and you're trying to do something like that, that's the experience you have, and that they are basically all the same experience. The only difference is the context in which they occur. That is, the religious seeker wants to see God. That's the experience they have. The uh, a scientist wants to have a principle become clear. That's the experience she has. Mm-hmm. The uh, remote viewer wants to be able to describe where somebody's hidden, and that's the one they have. So the only difference really is context and intention. What is the intention under which they they make the attempt to open to this part of ourselves?
1: Right. You know, I was a, a real knothead when I was a kid, real <laughs> rambunctious and... I had a really strong intent to win and so I would play games and I won almost all of them just because of my intensity to win which I aborted the uh, selfishness later on in life but you know I noticed that intention strong will where everyone else is laid back and let's have fun I'm a killer out there you know right. and and then I win everything because of the intent
3: well intention what we have learned over the last half century of research is that intention is one of the critical elements no matter whether you're a scientist or a composer or a painter or a remote viewer basically you have two components you have your native ability that is you're not going to be a very good physicist if you can't understand mathematics for instance and you're not going to be a very good uh, uh, spiritual pilgrim if you don't develop a discipline of pilgrimage, and you're not going to be a, a very good remote viewer if you don't develop a way of focusing your, your awareness so that you can do that. So you have native ability, and you have the discipline that you develop to express that native ability, It's just like any other human skill, whether it's golf or playing the violin or composing a symphony. You know, you and I could, even though you're very competitive, you and I could probably play golf for the rest of our lives, and Tiger Woods would never be in any serious uh, (laughs) danger of being defeated because his native ability is very great. But also, you will note in the stories about him, he is an extraordinarily disciplined golfer. Right and he practices over and over and over, hour after hour. That's what, if you, you know, remote viewing, which is uh, one of the things that I helped create. Yes. I mean, it's basically a kind of mental martial art. Yes. And like any martial art, it requires that you take that native ability and that you practice and practice and practice and practice. It's true of however you want to do it or whatever it is you would like to achieve in opening to non-local consciousness. You've got to deal with those two components.
2: In fact, when you and I uh, spoke when we were setting up the interview for this, I uh, remember you commenting that anybody who's serious about developing their uh, abilities, their psychic abilities, they also must be serious about what they're putting in their bodies and they must use uh, treat their body with uh, respect and not do a lot of numbing agents. Didn't you say that?
3: Well, there are two. Yeah, they're they're basically two things. You you have to develop a capacity for focusing, and there are two ways that this capacity gets developed. You either develop it out of neurotic obsession, that is, you develop neurotic behaviors which uh, that allow you to open. Which is why so many people who try to become psychics have sexual problems or. Uh, eating disorders or drug dependencies of one kind or another or oh, things like that because they develop neurotic focuses which allow them to open. but that doesn't give you as clear an, uh, a, 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 as clear a channel, I guess would be the way to put it, or you develop some kind of discipline and and you will note that, most of the disciplines which are involved with opening clearly to non-local consciousness tell you that uh, whether it's Patanjali's, you know, sutras of 2,000 years ago or whether it's my book, Opening to the Infinite, you have to treat your body well, you have to develop a sense of compassion and fairness, you have to be an honorable person, you have to take your native ability and, and develop a discipline for expressing it, and uh, otherwise, you what happens is you get taken over by neurotic tics, uh, which is which may make you, for instance, a great artist. I mean, Picasso was a wonderful artist. He was a terrible human being.
0: Huh. <laughs>
3: but uh, you know, Tesla had a vision of the electric motor as he was walking across Central Park. But he also he was also a germophobic. And couldn't sit down to eat unless there were at least two dozen napkins on the table. And he was a compulsive cleaner of things, and he wouldn't, sh- you know, he was just, he, was, he had a lot of neurotic compulsive behaviors. And so, if you look at people who have this ability to open to non local consciousness, you will see very quickly which one of the paths they have chosen.
1: Wow. Um, is uh, meditation oftentimes helpful in this?
3: If there is one single thing I would tell people who would like to explore the, the, the parts of themselves that traditional teachings would call higher consciousness or super consciousness or psychic or any of those sorts yeah, of things, yeah. it is that you develop a practice of meditation. You'll note that in Opening to the Infinite, I put a whole chapter in of a technique of meditation specifically designed for Western minds, because a lot of the meditation techniques were developed thousands of years ago in an utterly different cultural setting, and they're very hard for Westerners to to develop because they come out of a different cultural context, and the world is different, the stimuli that yeah. you're subjected to each day are different.
1: We're, we're in a different... Vibratory dispensation, then way back then, and way across to another place.
3: That's right, and so I, um, uh, so I have a whole chapter just for west, uh, a technique for Western minds. But I tell people, I don't care what technique you find if, if you find one that works, use it. You must do it. Okay, great time. But,
2: You're listening to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmaine Amber. Our guest today, Stephen A. Schwartz, Opening to the Infinite. We have more when we come back. Stay with us. And welcome back to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmaine Amber, your spiritual lifestyle experts helping humanity wake up one show at a time. Our guest today is Stephen Schwartz, who's written the book Opening to the Infinite.
1: So, Stephen, you were talking about uh, meditation in your first chapter in the book, I think it was. You give a very nice meditation technique. Would you mind sharing that for the benefit of our audience?
3: Oh, of course. Uh, It's called Words of Power, and it's a way of dealing with robotic behaviors that we all develop. Um, What I have tried to do is to deal with the difficulties most Westerners have about doing meditation. One of the things that people find very difficult, it says, still your mind in a lot of these teachings. Well, you know, 2,000 years ago, people lived in a different world, and so their minds were perhaps not as bombarded with activities, and it was much easier to still one's mind. Yes. So Westerners find that hard to do. So what I've done is develop a technique which... Um, allows you 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 have to you pick a phrase that is of um, deep spiritual importance to you it could be anything it could be uh it could be a, a song phrase it could be something out of the bible or some other scriptural text yep yeah it could be a poem it doesn't really make any difference it's something that is very deeply meaningful to you so let's just Let's just say that that uh, 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 I seek to be one with God is your phrase. Okay. I mean, I just made that up. Yes. By the way, the most powerful phrase that you can use is mommy and I are one. Huh. In studies that have been done, uh, uh, th- there is a whole literature on uh, FMRI studies while people are doing this and and it shows that the greatest activity occurs when we say mommy and I are one. Huh. But anyway,
1: Isn't that something?
3: You you pick a phrase that is deeply meaningful to you. That's the important
1: part. Oh, yep.
3: Highly numinous. And you say that phrase several times. And then there will be silence. And after a while, the thoughts will begin to emerge. If the thoughts, pertain to the the phrase you are using you think them. whether anybody else would think they pertain to it or not doesn't make any difference mm-hmm. and by the way you never tell anybody what your phrases are right. yes uh i mean there's a reason why you keep them secret because if you if you tell them to somebody else even your husband or wife and they say oh god that old thing uh, you know, then the next time you use it, that's what you're gonna hear.
1: Yeah, they put their junk on it.
3: Yeah, so you wanna keep it silent. So you, you say your phrase, there is nothing, after a little while, thoughts bubble up. If the thoughts pertain to the phrase, you think them. But after a bit, you will find that the mental chatter in your mind has gone off to other subjects, and when that happens, you stop, you say your, fr- you take a deep breath, you say your phrase again a couple of times and then there will be nothing and after a little while thoughts will bubble up if they agree with if they relate to the phrase then you think them and when they wander away then you stop and you do it again that's mm-hmm. what centering means yeah and you do that and you may have to do it 10 times in 20 minutes you may have to do it 30 times in the beginning but gradually what will happen is that you will have to do it less and less. And it's in the spaces in between, in those moments when there is the silence, that the interesting things about meditation occur. And then I give in the chapter, uh, uh, at the end, there's also you can develop phrases for physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual issues, Mm -hmm. and you use them. And then after you use them for a while, uh, and I explain how to do this, They will go flat, and when they go flat, you will discover that whatever they represented, you have now accomplished. It all happens very subtly. It may take a week. It may take a year. It may take a decade, but um, you can literally transform your life by doing this, and there are endless, there must be a thousand studies in meditation that tell us that meditation changes your blood chemistry, it lowers your blood pressure, it makes you sleep better, it makes you concentrate better. I mean, if there were one thing I could put into every school in the country, it would be to teach
1: non-sectarian meditation. Wouldn't that be wonderful? It would change the culture. It would. It actually would. You know, I believe meditation helps you get in touch with yourself and get replenished where everything, your immune system and everything, can simply work better. Your instincts can work better. I highly recommend it, and this is a good technique. Thank you.
2: Okay, we need to take a break. You're listening to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmaine Amber, your spiritual lifestyle experts with sound answers to life's tough questions. Our guest today is Stephen A. Schwartz. He's written the book, Opening to the Infinite. You can check him out at www.schwartzreport.net. <laughs> Welcome back and uh, you're listening to Keith and Charmay Amber Mastering Ourselves and our guest today is Stephen A. Schwartz, who's written the book Opening to the Infinite. And if you'd like to check out his website, he's at ww.stephen S T E P H A N A dot com slash home dot htm.
1: Stephen, you write about um, interdependence and interconnectedness with everything. You want to expound on that?
3: Well, I think, you know, I mean, I've been doing this research for 40 years now, so I've been at it a right long while, and I have looked at, you know, I personally have tested 25,000 people to in remote viewing uh, experiments so
1: that's a lot
3: that's a lot and I've done a lot of other stuff I just finished an an experiment on applied kinesiology and and um, what I have come away with is that all consciousness is interconnected and interdependent that is we know from studies that it is possible that the consciousness of an individual can affect a plant a cell uh, an animal, a tree, um, another person, anything that is living uh, appears to be hooked up to what we might think of, in a way, as the cosmic Internet. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's kind of like the Internet. It, you know, some computers are stronger than others, more powerful. Uh, some people have broadband access, and some people are still on dial-up. But uh, we're all connected. We're all linked into this. Yeah. We're all interdependent. You,
1: you know, you know, we have a um, a rose bush that we have loved for years, and we talk to it and stuff. And in about a year, uh, well, after about two years, it took about a year's time, it stopped growing thorns. Oh. Isn't that special?
3: That's very interesting. Well, you know, I had two dear friends, uh, Peter Tompkins and Chris Bird, who wrote a book called The Secret Life of Plants back in the early 70s, and, you know, which really started the whole idea that plants might have consciousness of some kind. and, And another friend, Cleve Baxter, who did experiments showing that. When you hurt a plant, when you took one of its leaves and hurt them, that the plant—he could hook them up to electronic measuring devices—that yeah. the plants responded. And yeah. what I think we need to recognize is that all life is a part of this network, and that we live embedded in the network. We—we we are not independent of it or above it. Or yeah. you know, people have a hard time remembering that they're mammals.
2: That's right
1: You said that on purpose I
2: I, I did Um,
1: I knew a guy who got really sick and heard of this uh, breakthrough medicine his doctor said well maybe this medicine will help everyone's talking really good about it and he took it And, you know, he just thought, you know, I'm going to take this and it's going to take care of everything. And amazingly, everything cured up on him. Then about three months later, he's just doing good. He had a pretty good thriving business, you know, just a gung-ho kind of guy, great personality. About three months later, they started getting some real bad press on that same medication. And he got worried. He came to the hospital and just in a short time, he raced right to death because of his belief system. Absolutely. Well,
3: you know, think about it for a minute. There are literally thousands of placebo drug studies. And, And, you know, this is one of those things that's hiding in plain sight. And while everybody focuses on the results of the drug, what nobody talks about is that if you look at all of these placebo studies overall you discover that 35% of the people who get the placebo, that is the sugar pill or the, the fake treatment as opposed to the real treatment, so it, 35% of those people do as well or better than the people who get the medication. Now, how can that be? Well, obviously,
0: <laughs> that's their great. belief
3: is what's making this happen. I mean... If you participated in a pancreas trial, for instance, most people couldn't tell you where their pancreas was, and they couldn't tell you what it did, even if they knew where it was. Is it by
1: your left ear?
3: Yes, you're right there. (laughs) That's right. It's a little behind the right ear. (laughs) And, uh, and um, uh, And yet, the studies of placebo drug trials involving pancreatic drugs show that as in everything else, about 35% of the people are going to get as do as well or better than the people who get the medication. Now what that's telling us is that we know at some level exactly where our pancreas is and what it does, and we are capable of manipulating it to produce a result that is as good or better than can be achieved with medication.
1: Just just, just like that, just our belief.
3: Just our belief, and then and, and speaking to the story that you told, which is uh, interesting, well, I'll remember that. There are also studies that show that there is a direct correlation between what the physician believes is going to happen, his belief in the drug, and uh, the efficacy of the drug. In fact, it's so strong that a late 19th century physician, French physician, said if you want to get the best results out of a drug, you want to take it early when the doctors still believe in it. <laughs> <laughs> you,
1: you know, I've been a healer for a lot of years, and I remember this one guy. He was rather tormented a- after a healing because it, it changed everything wonderfully. And then over some months, it, he sort of eroded back to where he was to some degree. And he, he, he kept calling me and writing me letters and stuff and says, was that you or me that changed? And well, it, it was my belief in what was happening. It transpired into him. It got a hold of the pieces in him that needed talking to and helped. And so he believed it, and we connected it, and I believed it. But he lost that over time.
3: Uh, that's correct. I mean, in fact, what appears to happen, I think, <coughs> excuse me, I think what healing does actually I think let, let me say this I think healing is not one thing it's it's kind of like dowsing you know the idea of whether you're dowsing over the land or whether you're dowsing on a map yes I mean we use the word dowsing but they actually they are it is an umbrella term that describes actually several different processes right and the same thing is true of healing there I've done a lot of healing research and there are two basically two kinds of healing that happen there is what i would call miraculous healing that is i don't know how it works suddenly a kneecap appears uh yeah, yeah. Uh, uh an elbow sudden that 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 was frozen suddenly um overnight the bones seem to grow back i mean that i don't know how that works so we yeah. ha- we ha- we don't know that yet i but
1: I've, I've seen uh cancer taken away just instantly i've seen eyes where you have these uh coke bottle glasses and the person throws a glass, they don't need him anymore. I've seen all kinds of things like that, not only with my practice, but with others. You know, and it doesn't happen every time by any means, but it is fantastic, isn't it?
3: Oh, well, there are, I mean, yeah, absolutely, there are extraordinary stories. But let me just finish the thought. There are... So there's kind of miraculous healing, like eyeballs appearing where there was no eyeballs. Jeez. I don't know how you do that. No. that w- science has nothing to say to that yet. <laughs> but,
1: but that only covers doctor's, about... Doctors sitting there with their mouth agape. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
3: <laughs> but there are, for instance, at Lourdes, uh, in, at, at Lourdes Spring, you know, the Healing Spring at Lourdes, yes. they have a very rigorous uh, uh, uh process that they go through to validate a healing and uh, there are 84 cases that i found in going through their literature in their reports yeah where those kinds of things occurred the eyeballs appeared where there was no eyeball oh, wow. the kneecap was one of the ones i remember Boy,
0: that's, anyway that's incredible that
3: constitutes sort of you know one one-hundredth of one percent or less of all the healings. Most healings are much more, uh, they occur less dramatically, sure. although they may not be, I mean, it, it, like a cancer stops. But it's not like suddenly you have a new liver. That's that's the difference I'm trying to make. Yes. And in those, which, which the, in this second type of healing, which science does have something to say about, um, which constitutes sort of 99.99% of healing. Yes. Those healings, I believe, occur because the the consciousness of the healer and the consciousness of the recipient of that therapeutic intention link up. And the person who is sending the healing, they don't actually send anything, but, but they... They they stand as a kind of intercessor for the person who is the recipient of the therapeutic intention.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
3: and what they do is they help the person's consciousness remember how to turn on their immune systems. Interestingly enough, I did an experiment several years ago in which I had healers do healing while they had little sealed bottles of sterile water, but... Uh, on the palms of their hands. This paper, by the way, and many of my papers, and a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about, people can go to my website www.stephaneschwartz.com, and the papers are up there. They can freely download them. I don't charge. You know, they're available. And this water paper is amongst them. Anyway, in the water paper, we had people doing healings, and while they had these little bottles of water on the on the palms of their hands, and what we discovered was is that healers, not always, but to a significant, highly significant level of competence, were able to change the molecular structure of the water, specifically the hydrogen-oxygen bonding relationship that links the molecules together. You know, you have two uh, H2O, two hydrogens, and an oxygen. Right. That's one molecule of water. And then you have, they, they link up with little bonds to form two molecules linked together, three. That's why water has the unusual properties it has. And
1: the, what the healers
3: do is change those, those bonds between the molecules.
1: Like clusters of grapes.
3: Yes, sort of like that, yes. Now, what the interesting part is, after I did that experiment, and it was quite successful, I went searching in the medical literature to see if anything else had been written about this HO bonding relationship. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, I discovered there were then, I mean, I'm sure there are many more now, there were then about 129 papers, which is a pretty good number, mostly done by oncologists, cancer specialists, who reported that when this exact same hydrogen-oxygen bonding relationship altered, that the body's immune system kicked in, and it was highly stimulated, and particularly the production of T8 cells, which are involved with immune response. Now, interestingly, just as you described in your own healing experience, which I was quite interested in, because of that kind of healing, that is where you, the healer, are stimulating the person's own immune response. They turn it on. Yeah. Yeah. after a while, if this is true, then you would expect that a certain number of people would revert because old established uh, patterns of illness would reassert themselves and they and they would revert to their old conditions. And I I remembered uh, a, a very famous healer named Catherine Kuhlman, who I used to know years ago. Yeah,
1: I was fascinated by her speech and, and her results.
3: She was amazing, but I remember talking to her at the time she's now dead but uh, talking to her at the time and uh, she told me that it was not at all uncommon that she said i would do these healings like people would be blind and suddenly they could see and then three or four days later or a week later the blindness would return and i I just don't quite understand why that happens and i think what happens now that i understand this better is that over a period of time old habit patterns old robotic patterns reassert themselves and the healing goes away because your body turns its you turn your body's immune response off
1: right you know i don't i've grown to have not a lot of respect for the flash in the pan fantastic healing near as much as you get a shift and and you coach a person on how to maintain that consciousness and new behavior and you go down to the core parts into them, subconscious or whatnot, that have caused them to go off track to the point of having a disease or having a uh, dysfunction or or blemish on them, that kind of thing. So the healing I'm involved in now is, by and large, consciousness shifting, which seems to have the um, psychological seed of what creates the problem to begin with.
3: Uh, That is so important what you've just said i wish more healers understood that and would do that because that is the way real healing occurs and seems to last is that you've got to not only do the healing but you have to help the person understand the patterns in their responses in their attitudes in their behaviors that are causing the imbalance in the first place
1: right on nice hey you um, you talked about the beginning of First known recorded remote viewing practice. It was by a, some
2: King Croesus or something. Croesus. Croesus. As rich as Croesus. What, what 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 happened there? Before you answer, our guest today, is Stephanie Schwartz, author of Opening to the Infinite. You're listening to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmy Amber. Actually, we only have about uh, 45 seconds here before break. Go ahead. Okay.
3: We'll start. <laughs> 45 seconds. Uh, it's all recounted in the 46th chapter of the Greek historian Herodotus, and it's a story of King Croesus, and he did what is what today we would call an outbound experiment. He sent people out to all the ancient oracles, asking them, a question, what is Croesus doing?
1: And he told them to the wait
3: 100 days before they asked the question.
1: Oracles... And I'll tell you what
3: happened on the other side of the break.
1: Okay, are, <laughs> are oracles psychics
2: or what? Yes,
3: the seven, uh, we can talk, yes, the oracles were psychics.
1: Okay.
2: Okay, hang on. Uh, mastering ourselves, and we will be right back. <laughs>
1: So, we were talking about the first uh, known recorded remote viewing, and it was practiced by King Croesus, and go ahead, Stefan.
3: Well, uh, you know, this is one of those stories that has been, um, was recorded uh, over 2,000 years ago uh, in the 5th century uh, B.C., and nobody paid much attention to it, but when I read it, uh, in fact, I read Croesus years ago and didn't get it, but when I became a researcher, I read it again, and it is almost exactly the way we would do an experiment today. So here's the basic story. Croesus has just lost his... He's the king of the Lydians.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And he was, a, he, he was a man noted for his opulence. That's why we say today, you're as rich as Croesus. Hmm. That's who they mean, the okay. king of Lydians. Anyway he just lost his son, and he was notified that the Persians were going to attack him. And he was, you know, they were big, he was little. So he was scared, he didn't know what to do. So he he decided he would consult the seven oracles of the ancient world. And uh, the oracles were um, clairvoyant temples, temples where there were what we would call today clairvoyant, or I would say, Priests and priestesses who could open to non-local consciousness. Right I don't actually like words like clairvoyant or psychic because or, they have too much negative emotional freight to them. But anyway, so he assembled seven embassies, that is, seven groups of people. Yeah. He made them ambassadors. He sent them out to the, to the seven oracles, and he said to the, or, to the, the embassies, I want you to wait a hundred days, and on the hundredth day I want you to go into the oracle and I want you to ask the oracle one question. What is Croesus doing? And, of course, it didn't make any sense to them at all, but being the king, he could do what he wanted, so all they, they all went out. Now, we only know the answer of one of them, but that's the oracle at Delphi, because that was the one that was right. And um, and so the oracles waited the obligatory 100 days, and then when they went into the chamber where the Pithonus, that is the oracle... And the oracle in at Delphi was a young girl, a, a virgin who had been raised in a very uh cloistered life, so that she wouldn't have any external stimuli yeah and she hung in a kind of cat's cradle thing that like a tripod that hung over a crack in the earth, and coming up out of the earth were uh light bituminous uh the fumes from uh like hydrocarbons yeah. Which produced a psychoactive experience. They put her in, like, kind of like LSD. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so these young girls would hang in this kind of gadget and, and, uh, with these breathing these gases and they would go into a kind of trance state. Anyway, when they walked into the chamber where the Pythoness, as she was called, was, was placed, um, before they even asked the question, she said, I can count the sands of time meaning the hundred days mm-hmm. and then she said they still hadn't asked the question then she said i see a a great bronze uh... A cauldron and a great sense of heat and a ram and a cock and a great bronze lid and they wrote it all down just as Croesus had told them to it didn't make any sense mm-hmm. and they went back and when he, they got back to lydia and they told Croesus what the, the oracle had said he, He he knelt down and gave obeisance to the oracle because on the hundredth day, he had decided, what's the most unkingly thing I can do? And he decided that the most unkingly thing... Huh?
2: Ten seconds before this show's done.
3: He decided that he would have a great fire built and a tripod put up and a big bronze cauldron, and he personally killed a cock and a ram and threw
0: them into the boiling water and put a bronze
1: lid on. Okay,
2: we're out of time. We're going to do more next hour. Thank you very much for being with us, Stefan, and we'll see you soon.